I think we have all probably met somebody that we consider a narcissist. Sort of a more lighthearted example would be Miss Piggy from The Muppets. She is totally self-absorbed. Everything is about her, even if it's not about her. But she's also kind of charming, so... Yeah. Would you say that Kermit the Frog demonstrates symptoms of being a victim to a narcissist? He's definitely codependent. But I do think in some of the movies that he, he kind of stood up to her a little bit. But she was also portrayed in some of them a little bit less narcissistic. So, But definitely in the, if you're old enough to have watched The Muppet Show, in The Muppet Show, she, he was totally, you know, subservient to her. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. We watch them on TV. We read about them in books. We learn about their nefarious behaviors in the news. I'm talking about dark triad personalities. Narcissists. Machiavellians. Psychopaths. They're the villains of both our stories and our real lives. Author Marshila Rockwell joins me in a discussion of what defines these three personality types, how they apply to both fictional and real-life people, and the ways writers can develop compelling dark triad characters. I just wanted to say I love your bio from your website. Can I read the first part of it really quick? Yeah, of course. Okay, so Marshila Rockwell was born an indeterminate number of years ago in America's last best place. A descendant of kings, pilgrims, Ojibwe hunters, and Red River Metis. Did I say that correctly? Uh, Métis. Red River Métis, and possibly a witch or two, she spent the first few years of her life frolicking gleefully in a large backyard that is now part of one of the nation's largest Superfund sites. Perhaps that explains her early penchant for fantasy and horror. Can you tell me a little bit about this Superfund site? Um, Yeah, it's, uh, I was born and raised in Montana, and this was the uh, Anaconda Copper Smelter, uh, and there was a river as there often is uh, near places uh, like that because they have to have water for many reasons, but one of the reasons is to dump their crap into. We lived down river, down down creek of uh, the smelter. Um, When I was little, the EPA used to come in and take hair samples from us to see how much arsenic was in our systems. Wow. And what, do you remember what yours were or were you normal or was it like dangerous um, I levels? Don't, I don't remember. I mean, I assume that it was never bad enough that, you know, they felt that they had to do anything. Although I do know that there are some older people there that, okay, I say I know, I have heard from relatives who live there. I don't know if this is true or not. So allegedly uh, that they have to take arsenic pills because they have so so much arsenic in their systems that if they don't keep a certain amount now in their systems that they wouldn't be able to function. I don't know how that works because arsenic is a poison. So it seems like if you're putting more into your system, that's a bad thing. But this is what I've heard. (laughs) Interesting. So many people like to write about toxic environments as a catalyst for something supernatural to happen. And and you have firsthand experience in that. Yeah, we moved from there when I was uh, pretty young, but um, I haven't been back there. But my dad has been back there and he sent me pictures and it's completely closed off now. There's um, chain link fence around it and big keep out, no trespassing, you know, uh, signs on it. And um, the area inside, uh, this is where we we lived, um, not 
the smelter itself, which is also part of the Superfund site. But the area where we live, uh, it doesn't look that much different from the area surrounding it. But mm -hmm. I'm assuming that the soil is pretty bad. Um, I'm also a civil engineer. I was registered in the state of California for several years. Um, and soil and geology were kind of my thing for a while. So I have a pretty good idea of what the soil probably looks like out there. And I'm surprised that anything is growing. So the community that is there is no longer there. Yeah, no, it's, it's gone, gone, gone. <laughs> that reminds me of other communities I've heard of where, for example, I think there was some sort of toxic smoke or something that was underground and it was leaking into the air and killing the people that lived in these communities. So you have a lot of ghost towns in different oh, yeah. parts of the world because of that. Well, Marshila, I am so excited to talk to you about dark triad personalities and light triad personalities and the, and the roles that they both play in fiction. So let's start. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your current projects? Um, well, just today, actually, I got the go ahead to announce my latest project, uh, which is a book for the Marvel Untold line. It's called Sisters of Sorcery. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I'm very excited about it. It features Clea. Um, so if you're not familiar with Marvel Comics at all or the MCU universe, uh, in the comics, Clea was Doctor Strange's wife, uh, a sorceress from another dimension who... Uh, was very powerful in her own right. She trained underneath him and then went on to become Sorceress Supreme of her dimension. So it's very exciting to write about her teaming up with some other sorceresses to kick some big bad butt. I I love that. I've always wanted to write for Marvel. Is this like a dream come true for you? How, like, What did you do in your career and your steps to get yourself to this point? Um, well, I have written several of what are called tie-in books, media tie-in fiction. Um, and those are novels that tie into uh, other intellectual properties. Uh, I wrote uh, for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I wrote the only official novels that tie into Dungeons and Dragons online. With my husband, I've written uh, a book that is based on the Mafia 3 uh, video game. Uh, I wrote a Buffy journal with him, although he, my husband, Jeff Marriott, shout out, uh, he's written tons of Buffy and Angel stuff and so much more. I have a, I'm sitting in front of a bookshelf. I have the top shelf and he has all the other shelves full of books. So um, he's written a lot more of it than I have. Um, we also worked on a Xena Warrior Princess trilogy. Oh, you're talking to me now. I love Xena. That's so cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, something that often happens with tie-in fiction is that uh, a certain company will pay for the license to produce books, but then their distribution uh, will fall through. So we write the book and you get paid, but the book never sees the light of day. I see. And Unfortunately, that's what happened with the Xena books. And I also uh, wrote a trilogy based on Neil Gaiman's Lady Justice comic books that I was super, super proud of. And the distribution, I don't know, it went to another dimension or something, but those books never got to see the light of day, which makes me very sad. But it is disappointing. Yeah. I The closest I got to a situation like that, I worked for Realm Media for a little bit last mm -hmm. year to work on a pilot story a uh, mm -hmm. very cool science fiction uh cyberpunk interpretation of a vietnamese creation myth and i really enjoyed working on it and we went back and forth back and forth back and forth me and the editor were so excited about it and then when it got to whatever end it gets to creatively or within the the organization it just died mm -hmm. and i was so sad so I know that feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty much the same same kind of thing. So um, I did, uh, my husband and I also wrote an original novel together called Seven Psychos, which is about psychopaths. But I figured I'd talk about that a little bit later in our discussion. Well, I started reading this, The Seven Psychos, actually. Oh. And I had a question. I wanted to start off with it. So 
Okay. The book that you wrote with your husband, Jeffrey Marriott, mm-hmm. uh, the prompt I have is The Walking Dead meets Suicide Squad and the Andromeda strain in this fast-paced mix of science fiction and horror. Zombies overtake Phoenix, Arizona, and seven people are sent downtown to find the cause of the death, the disease, and hopefully a cure. So as a fellow Arizonan, I love this premise. I thought it was so <laughs> great. But what really jumped out to me in your opening chapter is the character of Light... And I find it to be very complex because he's a paramedic, but he has a very surprising dark side where he provides a, a unique service. Do you want to go into that a little bit? I'm um, sure. I don't think it's a huge spoiler, uh, but <clears throat> he's uh, basically what we would call an angel of death or what people who uh, are that consider themselves angels of mercy most of the time um and unusually they are they're usually women um so the character of light is a little bit unusual in that regard um they are often in healthcare fields so that's a little scary but usually uh in settings where uh, they care for people on a one-to-one basis, so more like nursing homes and personal care nurses and that sort of thing. So hopefully I'm not terrifying listeners, but um, there are people who like to play God um, and they decide that somebody's life is no longer, does not, does not have the quality that it should anymore. And so they're going to be give that person mercy by ending their life for them. And because they're in the medical field, they usually have access to things that help them do that. I have read news stories about that. It is very chilling. Yeah. Especially when you find out that some of these people have a very long list of of victims. Oh yeah. Most of them don't get caught for a long time. And because they're in the medical field, um, a lot of times it gets covered up. And they just get moved to another place. If it's a, if it happens to be a doctor, then people don't. There's the reputation of whatever hospital they, or clinic they might be connected to. You know, there's all sorts of political political things that come into play, and so um, they just get shuffled down the line. And you know, more people die until I guess the tally gets to be too great. I'm not really sure what the trigger is to make people pay attention and do something about it. But. So this takes us into the dark triad personalities then, which is narcissism, Machiavellianism, and, and psychopathy. Yes. Can you walk us through these traits and give us some examples of where we might have seen these in either fiction or real life? Sure. Um, well, narcissism, I think we have all probably met somebody that we consider a narcissist. It's usually defined by entitled self-importance. Somebody who will take anything that happens to or around them or to the people around them and center themselves. I mean, I'm sure we all know people like that. Um, yes. I, I, what I've noticed is I think everyone can probably agree that there's always a little bit of selfishness to all of our characters, but it's when you come across someone who is so coldly uh, self-motivated, that's when you start to realize that there's like a different level and that's where you start to experience the narcissistic uh, tendencies. Yeah, definitely. Um, so from fiction, for a while I was watching uh, The Morning Show. Um, I think it's on the Apple channel streaming. And the main character is Alex Levy. She and her partner are hosts of a morning show. And the very first episode, her partner has been fired for sexual harassment of fellow employees. And she's just finding that out as she comes into work to start filming for the day. And all she can think about is how that's going to affect her and her career. She has no thought as to how it affects the lives of the women who were harassed. You know, all she she's just worried about, well, what is this going to do to me? What are people going to think of me? Because we were like America's favorite little couple. Not, you know, they weren't a couple, but, you know, they were together. And, you know, just taking somebody else's horrible situation and looking for how it hurts them. That's a, 
not very nice example, sort of a more lighthearted example would be Miss Piggy from the Muppets. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. She is totally self-absorbed. Everything is about her, even if it's not about her. But she's also kind of charming. So, yeah. Would you say that Kermit the Frog demonstrates a victim, like the symptoms of being a victim to a narcissist? He's definitely codependent. But I do think in some of the movies that he kind of stood up to her a little bit, but she was also portrayed in some of them a little bit less narcissistic. So, but definitely in the, if you're old enough to have watched the Muppet show in the Muppet show, she, he was totally, you know, subservient to her. If they had been serial killers, um, she would have been the dominant partner and he would have been the subservient partner. And you, you hear about that a lot too, right? In the news where when there's pairings uh, in a murder, one is usually the the one leading the whole thing and the other one's along for the ride. Yep. Yeah, that's usually how it works. Uh, sometimes though, the twist is you think one is the dominant one and they're really not. So, oh, like covert narcissism. Yeah, they and and they that's part of their thing. It actually kind of uh, trends down into Machiavellianism is that they want you to think that the sub, the submissive person is the dominant person because the dominant person in a serial killing pair often gets worse punishment than the submissive one. So if they can make you think that they're the one who was like forced into doing it or, you know, brainwashed into doing it, then they get to do all of this bad stuff and then not face as terrible of consequences for it if they get caught. So is the Machiavellian also a narcissist? What, what distinguishes them from the narcissist? Um, a narcissist can be somebody who isn't necessarily particularly smart. Um, I mean, I'm not saying they're like, super dumb or anything like that they're just not like strategic yeah they're not evil geniuses and usually machiavellianism you kind of associate with somebody who is really strategic um they they have plans within plans and wheels within wheels and the so, classic villain from the yeah. movies oh yeah definitely i think of like cersei lannister from game of thrones like she had all these different plans in motion um i also think of batman from Ooh. comics because okay. um, he I, I'm not so sure that it was really played up in the movies but definitely in the comic books and some of the animated movies he had plans ways to defeat every single member of the Justice League if they ever became a threat did that cause discourse at some point when they discovered that yeah they were you know they didn't trust him they you know, thought that that made him bad. But there was one of the animated um, movies, and I can't remember which one it was. Wonder Woman asked him, you know, you have all of these things to counteract the members of the Justice League if they turn evil. What is there to counteract you? And he said, basically, that's why I created the Justice, the Justice League. To you stop know? Batman. Yeah, that's your job. How would you describe then Batman and Joker's relationship? Are they both like the same, the different sides of the same coin? No, I really think the Joker is a straight up psychopath. Okay. Because at least as he's portrayed in most things, he doesn't necessarily have like a reason for doing a lot of the things he does. Like he, sometimes he has plans, but sometimes he's just has just enough plans that he gets Batman into a situation where he can hurt him. He doesn't care about anything else. He hasn't really planned anything else. He definitely, it depends on the depiction because a lot of the depictions, he's just a straight up psychopath. And in a lot of depictions, he is more strategic. I think of him more as just the straight up psychopath who just has is completely lacking in empathy, just callous and cynical and just out to hurt people for his own pleasure and amusement. If we go back to Machiavellianism, that the Grinch is a good example also. He had all these plans for 
taking over Whoville and ruining their Christmas and making them unhappy. And even like when Cindy Lou Who came in and saw him, you know, he was able to think on his feet and, um, you know, make her think mm. that he was Santa Claus and that what he was doing there was good, even though, like, I'm taking this string of lights because it needs to be repaired. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I think he is kind of a low-level Machiavellianistic. I'm not really sure what the uh, adjective is there, but I think he demonstrates some of those traits for sure. And then for psychopaths, um, there's some debate whether there's any difference between sociopaths and psychopaths. Um, yeah, I hear that a lot. And I don't know if what the saying that I've heard is correct or not, but it's like sociopaths are made and psychopaths are born. Is that true? I'm not sure because as you will discover, as you read Seven Psychos, psychopathy is partially based on a lack of empathy, which can be due to brain structure. There are people who the uh, structures in your brain that control empathy have been atrophied or injured. Most uh, psychopaths, uh, if you look into their histories, you will discover that they had some sort of traumatic brain injury as a child. Not all of them by any means. Um, so there's there's this physical thing. So that's the nature part. But there are people who have these structures that are smaller than they should be or atrophied or for, you know, whatever reason aren't functioning the way they would in a normal human being, uh, normal in quotation marks, of course. But they don't turn into serial killers. Um, you have people who you know, oh, well, serial killers, they had such a bad childhood, they were abused, this and this and this. Well, there are lots of people out there who are abused as children and don't become psychopaths. So I don't think you can say a psychopath is just born, because a lot of people are born the same with the exact same situations and physical anomalies as psychopaths, and they don't become serial killers, right? So it's, gotcha. it has to be both. I personally think the difference between sociopaths and psychopaths is sociopaths, they are more focused on personal gain, whereas psychopaths are more focused on gratification. Interesting. So getting pleasure from circumstances, whatever they may be. Right. And they may not even know why they're doing what they're doing, which I think most sociopaths do know why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, what examples do you have of psychopath psychopaths? We'll start with psychopaths. Psychopaths, um, on uh, obviously from TV, Dexter, right? Mm -hmm. Classic serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. I mean, any serial killer out there is going to be a psychopath. I don't think there's any way around that. Uh, and that's because Dexter, for example, takes pleasure out of killing other serial killers. Right. And, you know, as far as sociopaths, again, the, the thing that's the same between both of them is this lack of empathy. They don't see other people as people because they're incapable of empathizing with them. So they don't understand how their behavior affects other people or they may have an intellectual understanding of it and just don't care um, because they want what they want. And, you know, if you're collateral damage, well, too bad for you. I think there are a lot of politicians who are sociopaths. And, you know, some of these traits are actually good, right? If Make them good leaders. Right. They can make the them strengths. good leaders. Uh, I was actually reading an article that um, some of these traits are prevalent in creative people. Uh, because I, I don't think lack of empathy necessarily. I, I kind of think you need to be empathic to be a good artist, but uh, maybe narcissism, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you need to be a little bit narcissistic to be able to even put your work out there. I agree. And I'm sure every writer listening to this is like, hmm, about themselves. But I, I think that's absolutely true. The courage it takes to put your stuff out there, it helps when you're being fueled internally. Right. I mean, you, you have to simultaneously think, if you're a writer, this is the best thing that's ever been written, and this is the worst thing that's ever been written. 
the best thing that's ever been written that allows you to get it off your computer and out into the world. And the worst thing that's ever been written that allows you to look at it a little bit more objectively and try to make it better. So of those three types, which one makes the, well, I I guess the best villain or the worst character to make a good villain? I think you have to have all three because if you have like, say, just a straight up psychopath, then I feel like they're a little bit one dimensional because it's totally true that people in real life go on killing sprees for absolutely no reason that, you know, other people can discern, maybe FBI profilers. But, in you know, there are things that happen in real life that we can't do in fiction because they just don't sound true, right? Yeah. So if you have a straight up psychopath for a villain, then I think that comes off as kind of one dimensional. Right. Because characters need to have motives and stakes and and ambitions. Right. Exactly. In a good story. Exactly. So I think if you take any one of these traits by themselves and build your villain on that, then they're going to be one dimensional. Um, I think you have to have a mix of all of these three traits to really build an interesting villain. Villains are the heroes of their own stories. You should probably be putting as much effort into why your villain villain is doing what they're doing as you're putting into why your hero is doing what they're doing. In addition to that advice, for any writer wanting to write a really good dark triad personality or combination of it into their work, what would be your your main advice? Um, I I don't think it would hurt to read true crime um, if you have the stomach for it. I'm a huge murderino and my husband and I have a huge library of true crime and criminology, you know, all sorts of books on the subject. He actually wrote a Criminal Minds book related to the first five seasons of that show. We're we're true crime junkies. Um, I think that having some familiarity with some of these personalities will help you to make better villains. If your villain is like, you know, going to be one of these larger than life kind of villains, like you see in like epic fantasy, for instance, if your villain is the mean girl in high school, you know, maybe you don't need to read The Psychopath Next Door. (laughs) Um, It could help, obviously. Sure, yeah. Uh, Would you say Sauron from Lord of the Rings is an interesting villain? I think he is an interesting villain, but not in The Lord of the Rings. Um, I think you have to go back to, like, the Silmarillion to, you know, his beginnings to really understand him because as he is written in the Lord of the Rings, he's just this scary shadow off in the distance. You never know what he's thinking. You never know really why he does what he does, except, well, he's evil. You know, he wants the ring, you know, that, and that's super one dimensional. So they say art imitates life. And obviously the personality traits we just discussed don't just live on the page or on the screen. There are actual diagnoses that are given to real people. What are some examples of people in history or now that demonstrate these certain attributes? Well, at the risk of being political, uh, Trump is a classic narcissist. Anybody with training in, and I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I have studied the subject for years and years. So... I have a little bit of knowledge on the subject and from everything I have read, he seems like a classic narcissist doing things to make himself look bigger and better, um, often at the expense of the other people around him. Um, And, you know, as we said, some of these traits are very prevalent in politicians, so that's not so surprising. As far as uh, Machiavellianism, again, political figure, I think Putin is a great example of that right now with the this invasion of the Ukraine, Um, you know, this was not, it seems like from the things that I've been reading and hearing on the news and all of that, that this wasn't like something that, you know, he just decided to do on a whim. This is something that he's been planning for years and years and had different dominoes that he had in place and waited patiently for them to fall to get to the point where he's at right now. I don't know what his end game is, but I think that he is a very devious mind 
Um, and he's a, probably a good example of a modern day um, Machiavelli. Um, and when for Machiavellian mystic characters like that, the ones that tend to take a lot of time putting their plan in action, how easy is it for this personality type to change gears or, or have their, change their minds or be reasoned with? I'm not sure they can be. Uh, okay. I think, you know, maybe it would have to take some act of God or, you know, some really big thing out of the blue that just like totally changed their mindset. Appeal to their interests in some way that hopefully benefits others and doesn't continue to hurt others. And maybe, or, you know, some, see, I, I think Putin is probably also a psychopath. So I'm not sure that the things that normally cause us to really, if we're going down a bad path and some of the things that might cause us to really stop and reassess our lives and fix them, like somebody we love getting really sick, yeah, we get really sick or you know, somebody that we care about dies, God forbid, or, you know, something along those lines, those sorts of things often cause us, uh, people to reassess their own lives. But if you don't have any empathy, those, you know, instances don't have any effect on you. So I'm not sure that somebody who had both of those traits, um, Machiavellianism and psychopathy, that there is anything that you could do to make them not try to push their plans forward. Would you say that Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos founder, has Machiavellianistic traits since a lot of what she did was strategic over time? And I'll back up and explain for the the listeners. Um, Theranos was started by Elizabeth Holmes when she was 19, uh, claiming that with one drop of blood, they can run a ton of tests. And the problem was the blood test didn't work. So over 15 years... She uh, made a $10 billion company built on lies. Yeah, um, they actually, isn't that the one where they like had boxes in drugstores and there was nothing in it, right? It was just, it was supposed to be like a thing where you could do your blood test or put your blood or whatever. And and Mm -hmm. it was nothing, right? It was basically just a cardboard box. I don't actually know with her because I don't know that her thought process was, well, I'm going to do this. I'm sure she thought, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to bilk people out of money. Um, I'm not sure that she saw it lasting as long as it did. Okay. And what was really interesting when I was watching the show, there's a show on, I'm forgetting, I think it's Netflix with Amanda Seyfried. They talk a lot about the initial motives when she was first trying to find funding for the project. And you get stuck in that terrible circle of, well, I need funding to support my research, but people go, I won't fund you unless you show me research. Right. And, And so she found that she had to start the manipulation early at that point, just to even get into that circle of um, sustainability. Right. And I I think that that's a temptation that a lot of uh, scientists can fall into. And I think a lot of them have really good intentions at first. Um, But we all know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Do the... Do the means justify the ends? Do the ends justify the means? Uh, To me, it doesn't really matter that, you know, she might have had good intentions because there were plenty of places along the line that she could have stopped. And she That's true. And in fact, I think she's continuing to do stuff. So I have Holmes didn't stop scheming when she was indicted by a federal jury. In 2018, reports came out that she was talking to investors to start a new business. Yeah. Any other examples of psychopathy, um, narcissism, Machiavellianism? Well, again, at first, psychopathy. Pick pick your favorite serial killer. Who's your favorite serial killer? Who's my favorite serial <laughs> They all stress me out equally. <laughs> uh, I remember when serial killers were really big when I was growing up. They were like in the news and on uh, TV shows. My mom would watch Lifetime movies, and I grew up framed with the idea like my mind was very much shaped by don't get caught by a serial killer watch out for your neighbors don't Mm -hmm. walk home alone um stranger danger exactly and it's what's scary too is um especially during the pandemic hearing stories about people maybe not during the pandemic but 
uh, online dating when you, mm-hmm. you know, swipe right on someone and you go meet them up and something happens to you on that date, you know, making sure that you watch your friends and check up on them. Uh, because the act of serial killing is evolving and finding new opportunities as time goes on. Yeah, their methods have to evolve with technology. Um, although you do still have your I-5 killers and your Highway of Tears killers, the ones who are usually somehow involved in the trucking industry and hitchhikers. P- people do still hitchhike. Don't do that. Um, we had the baseline killer in the Phoenix metro area right. in 2005 and 2006. Right. Sometimes there are some methods that are tried and true, and they're probably not going to change anytime soon because they work, and we still need um, those particular industries, right? We still have to have truckers. So they, the industries that uh, support trucking have to still be there. And those, all of those sort of things can lead to instances where it's really easy for people to disappear and other people not to notice. In the real world, we can't just cut down our everyday enemies with the blade like we could in a book or a movie. So what are some ways we combat dark triad personalities in real life and also in stories? How do, how do they compare? Well, it's very, very different in my opinion. If you are dealing with any of these personalities uh, to the point certainly to the point where they're abusive, but even if you feel like you're being gaslighted or most people, I feel like know in their gut when something's wrong um, and they're not being treated the way that they should be treated. At least I I hope most people know that. Um, Sometimes you're raised in such a way that Mm -hmm. you don't know what it's like to be treated correctly. And that's, that's really sad. Uh, And I hope that people, who are in that situation, you know, find a way to, to know what their worth is. But for, you know, people who, who do have a gut, a gut feeling that they are not, that something is wrong. The first step I think is setting boundaries. You can't do this to me. You can't say this to me. You can't act this way. If you do those things, I am going to do this. Um, The other step is just avoidance, right? This person is, every time I come to them with a problem, they make my problem about them and they just make me feel worse. I'm just not going to go to them with my problems anymore because I just wind up feeling worse. I feel like those are kind of the only two things you can realistically do when you're dealing with these personalities, unless you're in some kind of position of authority or power where, you know, and these people are doing something actively criminal, you know, something along those lines. But in the everyday, you know, we meet narcissists all the time. We meet sociopaths far more often than I think we realize. The best thing you can do is just stay away from them really as best you can, which is completely the opposite of what Mm. you do in fiction. Yes. Because you go after them, you want to stop them doing what they're doing, you want to overthrow them, you want to defeat them. That's your whole purpose for being as a hero. Do you think those fictional stories might set up false expectations for readers who might think they need to do the same when dealing with their own villain? I mean, I think they can be, sometimes it can be inspiring, like uh, in the case where, for instance, you might be being bullied by somebody. It might help you to uh, stand up for yourself and set those boundaries. If, you know, it, if reading your favorite epic fantasy encourages you to go out and, you know, buy a sword with the idea of, you know, potentially using it on your favorite psychopath, then I think maybe you might be a dark uh, personality yourself. Fair point. Fair point. Okay. So let's talk about those light triad personalities, those heroes in our stories. Uh, I had, when I looked it up, it was faith in humanity, humanism, and Kantianism. Did I get that correct? Yeah. uh, Some people say Kantianism. Some, some, I think also say Kantianism. Um, Okay. I did take uh, philosophy in college, but it was a really long time ago. So (laughs) 
I'm going to say Kantianism, and I apologize to everybody out there who has a philosophy degree and is screaming at their podcast right now. We are trying our best. (laughs) Um, Faith in humanity. Well, that's believing in the fundamental goodness of humans, right? Mm -hmm. And my number one example of that is Wonder Woman. She always believed in the goodness of humans. There's lots of different sayings. Um, One of the things from the Wonder Woman movie, and I have to tell you, I'm a huge, huge Wonder Woman fan. And to see her up on the big screen the first time was just such an emotional thing for me. It was incredible. But in the movie, she's speaking to the big bad war god Ares. And he's, you know, trying to get her to come to his side and you know, saying, you know, the humans are awful. They don't deserve to live. They don't deserve you. And she says, you know, you're right. They are as bad as you say they are. They are everything you say they are, but they are capable of so much more. And she, she always believed that. She always looked beyond what the, the darkness to the light, right? She, she always saw the light in people. And it didn't matter if it was uh, an enemy that she had just defeated, you know, somebody who yelled at her at the, on the street. I, it didn't matter. It didn't matter who you were or what you did. She always looked for the good in you. I love that. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. So, I was just going to say her one of her main rivalries in the comics is with uh, Barbara Minerva uh, Cheetah from the second movie. Mm-hmm. And throughout the entire run of the comic books she is trying to save her friend barbara minerva no matter what the cheetah does to her you know no matter how much she hurts her no matter how much trouble that she causes wonder woman is just always sees the good in her and knows it's there and is trying to help her get it back you know would, would you say that wonder woman and superman share that in common um i don't no, I mean, I, I feel like Superman believes that humans as a humankind as a whole is worth saving. Okay. But I don't see him necessarily. Saving Lex Luthor under all yeah. costs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't see him ever saying, you know what? I know there's good in you, Lex. I mean, maybe there are instances. I'm not as biggest Superman fan as I am a Wonder Woman fan. So it's possible that that has occurred somewhere in the long and convoluted history of comics. But for the most part, I feel like it's more of an overall ideal with him and with Wonder Woman. It's personal. Every single person has good in them. Okay. That kind of plays into the next one, which is humanism, which... I got these uh, definitions that I'm using from a Scientific American article called The Light Triad. The Light Triad versus the Dark Triad. So uh, listeners want to look it up. But humanism, according to them, is valuing the dignity and worth of each individual, which Wonder Woman definitely does. She does all of these things uh, in the Light Triad. Um, But another example of that, I think, is Dorothy Gale from The Wizard of Oz, because each of her companions that she picked up along the way, you know, the lion thought he was cowardly. She saw him as having worth and value aside from whether or not he was courageous or cowardly. And, you know, obviously, spoiler alert, he was courageous the whole time. You didn't realize it. And that's a great quality in real life when you find people like that, especially managers, mentors, people that can bring other people up. Definitely. I think that, I mean, I wish there were more people like that in life. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that there are as many as there should be, but maybe I just haven't met them. So that's entirely possible, too, because I'm a total introvert and stay home most of the time. (laughs) I I relate to that as well. (laughs) For Kantianism, uh, that one is treating people as an ends unto themselves, not as a means to a goal. One of the people who I think epitomizes this, uh, and probably also humanism and faith in humanity, also is Mr. Rogers. Oh, yes. 
Yes. He always saw the value in each and every person and puppet (laughs) that he interacted with. And, you know, he always made sure that his viewers, the children, you know, each of them understood that they were special just the way they were. How would you identify Bob Ross, the painter? Happy little trees. Yeah. Take a deep breath. <laughs> Enjoy the little little moments. I Squirrels. <laughs> uh, I think he probably might also be a good example of Kantianism because he, you know, he's not, like, I never got the feeling that Bob Ross was painting on TV to make money. I always felt like he was painting on TV to help everybody else de-stress. <laughs> yes. Oh, and it works. One time I was stressed and someone told me, listen to Bob Ross videos. It's on Netflix. I'm like, okay. So I plugged in and there's something about his voice that instantly calmed me down. And I highly recommend if anyone's kind of in a, having an anxious moment, see if Bob Ross can help you out. Yeah. And the sound of the paintbrush on the canvas, you know, it's mm-hmm. just... A lot of people find that really soothing. So, and, and definitely his voice. He's got a very calming voice. Another kind of weird example of Kantianism, which may seem contradictory at first, is Ash Ketchum from Pokemon. Oh, okay. So he his goal is to catch them all, but uh, which you would think, okay, well... Everybody is a means to his goal in that case. But in reality, every single Pokemon he meets, he celebrates their individual abilities. And he, you know, whatever it is they need, he's focused on getting it for them. And it's not, you know, even though the song has got to catch them all, it's never about catching them all for him. It's always about what's best for the Pokemon. Interesting. And that makes me wonder then about all the light triad personalities and the dark triad personalities, how these definitions are influenced by our cultures or systems, because in the world of Pokemon, it's very normalized that you go around catching animals and having them fight, right? And not so normalized here in our real world environment. But within the system and the culture and, you know, the environment of Pokemon being able to highlight Ash Ketchum's characterization as being very supportive. He's a great protagonist, a good good example for children, uh, to be able to identify him as one of the light triad personalities. Yeah, yeah. And I I think one of the important things to, um, to remember in that case is that the Pokemon who are fighting, they're there because they want to be there. I mean, even though he catches them in the ball, it's like he's not holding them against their will. They stay with him because they want to stay with him. Um, that might not be the case with Team Rocket. But... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, you're taking me back to my childhood. <laughs> okay, so how would you, now that we know what the dark triad personalities are like and the light triad personalities, how do they play off of each other, both in fiction and the real world? Um, well, I think this gets back to what you said about in the real world, we can't cut down our enemies and, you know, how do we how should we react if we come across these um, personalities? I think um, in the real world, as little interaction as possible is the best way for these types of personalities to play off of each other. Although I do think that um, because light triad personalities do tend to see the best in everyone, if they do run across a dark triad personality, they're probably going to try and save them to their own detriment. That is a very common interaction, yes. What what advice would you give the light triad personalities so they don't get caught in that web? People can have goodness in them, but it isn't necessarily your job to bring that out. And if it's hurting you, then you shouldn't try. That's great advice. And then, obviously, in fiction, I think that they wind up being enemies who fight to the death. (laughs) (laughs) And that makes for good reading. (laughs) Okay, so then when you're, this is a question I just came up with, when your character developing for a light triad personality, how do you, how do you keep them complex and interesting so the the reader or the viewer doesn't kind of go, okay, (laughs) with about, about them? Well, here's the thing. 
uh, nobody is just a dark triad personality or a light triad personality, right? Everybody is a mix of both. Like, you know, we talked about creative people probably are a little narcissistic. Maybe psychopaths believe that they can do what they do because they believe that other people aren't going to interfere with them because they're basically good people and, you know, they're going to do what they're told. And, you know, if they give them orders to get out of the way or whatever, don't fight back, they're going to do it, right? Because that's what good people do. I mean, it may not be because they have an understanding of what good truly is, but they have an understanding of how good acts and take advantage of it. I don't know if that's really having good in them, but they at least know it when they see it. There's another quote from Wonder Woman, the movie. She says, um, I used to want to save the world, to end war and bring peace to mankind. But then I glimpsed the darkness within their light. I learned that inside every one of them, there will always be both. And I think that's the truth. Yeah. I agree. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a long conversation. You, you called it, but it's been <laughs> so interesting. Is there anything else you'd like to share or add? Um, just want to plug the book that you are currently reading, uh, Seven Psychos, which I usually do. The short plug is uh, Psychopaths versus Zombies. Uh, that one's on Amazon. And then my new book that, again, I just got to uh, announce today, uh, Marvel Untold Sisters of Sorcery. That one is going to be out in September from Aconite Books. Um, they have it on their website right now. The cover has not yet been revealed. Um, but if you go to uh, my Twitter account, uh, at Marcy Rockwell, I put up a little photo as, you know, to tide you over until you get to see the actual cover. So, and it's got my other favorite topic, uh, psychopaths and then it doesn't, well, I mean, maybe it has a psychopath. My other favorite topic, which is witches. <laughs> Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.